Over the last number of weeks, I've spoken to you about things that we can't live without. In, in, in part one, we talked about hope, the hope of God, that we cannot live without hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And the second week, we talked about grace and how important it is for us to live on the grace of God, to, to, to say, like Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God, that it has a, a way of bringing about a transformation in a person's life. Last week, I, I said that we, we've got to have the faith uh, the just shall live by faith, but it's specifically the faith that comes from Christ, the faith that is in Christ, and the faith that is of Christ. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about what I believe is the indispensable, indispensable source of life and well-being for, for us as followers of Christ. Uh, it's funny, l- last night, Kelly started uh, her message by talking about some of the shootings that, that have happened in the recent months and all the debate that's been talked about as a result of, you know, gun control. And, and I was going to actually start out the same uh, kind of way, talking about the Sandy Hook uh, shooting and 20 young children uh, were killed. You know that six adults were also uh, killed on that uh, terrible day. But maybe some of you heard about uh, the newspaper that is in New York and that, that serves uh, Rockland, uh, Westchester, and Putnam County. Uh, the newspaper is called the Journal News. And what they did was they, they decided to publish the names and addresses with a map uh, of uh, legal permit gun holders in, in those two areas, uh, Westchester and, and, and uh, uh, Rockland counties. The, interestingly, the... the uh, County clerk, they, they did it through the information of uh, uh, the Freedom of Information Act, and so they got that information. But uh, the the county clerk of Putnam refused to give out that information, believing that those uh, residents uh, in Putnam County had the right to privacy, but also he wanted to to protect uh, the residents of, of Putnam County. So he refused to release that information. And the whole thing kind of backfired on the newspaper, uh, because uh, not only did a number of people become angry about what they did, canceling their subscriptions, uh, boycotting some of the advertisers uh, of the newspaper, but, uh, but a, a, a blogger also created a map of his own, and, and he published a, a map of, and the location, the addresses, of the editorial staff of the paper. And uh, as a result of that, uh, the paper now has armed guards uh, at one of their, one of their uh, newspaper offices. And how ironic is that? Uh, I want to share a quote with you from a guy by the name of Walter Shore, and I'll tell you who he is after I share the quote. He says, that was the most idiotic article I have ever seen. Now, uh, along, with the, um, along with the map and the addresses and the names of the gun holders, uh, there was an article that was published along with it. It was titled, The Gun Owner Next Door and What You Don't Know About the Weapons in Your Neighborhood. So so Mr. Shaw says that was the most idiotic article I've ever seen. Now, Now, he is a former jewel thief. The FBI attributes that he has been responsible for more than 3,000 break-ins, uh, over a period of the 1960s and 70s, he's netted about maybe about $7 million, right? And, and again, here's a quote from him. He said, for a thief to have a list of who has a gun and who doesn't is priceless. Why rob the house where there is a gun when you can hit the house next door? 
So I'd like to, I'd like to take that statement, that, that, that idea, that, that thesis of, of why hit the house that has a gun when you can hit the house next door that might be an easy mark. And I want to draw this kind of comparison. See, the Bible teaches, as Jesus said, that there is a thief whose objective is to kill, steal, and to destroy. And I, I believe somehow, some way, that the enemy of our soul has, has, has a list, has, has the names and addresses of those who are most vulnerable and, and those who are most susceptible to attack. And one of the things that we need to know is that the Word of God, and that's what I want to share with you this morning, that the thing that we can't live without is the Word of God. And the Word of God is a powerful weapon that is mighty through God for, for so much. But, but it's not just a weapon. Uh, it's so much more than, 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 than just a weapon. It's, it's the nourishment by which we are fed and we grow. I said last week, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But I believe that literally that the Word of God produces life. Listen to this in Proverbs chapter 4. God is speaking through the, through the prophetic word, and he's saying, my son, pay attention to what I say, that is to my words. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those that find it, and they are health to a whole man's being. They are life. My words, God's word, is life to those that find it, and it's well, wellness or well-being to an entire man. You know, Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life. Uh, David said, the word of God have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against him because it is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. There are many applications of the word, but I want to narrow down this teaching this morning to something that is that is was so important that it came out of the mouth of Jesus. And, and listen, wh- whenever the living word, Jesus, speaks about the written word, Scripture, I-, I think it's something that we need to pay attention to. So I want to narrow our focus of study this morning to what Jesus said. The first thing that comes to my mind when I started doing this series was this verse, man does not live by bread only, but by every word of God. Now, now that was spoken at one of the most epic battles that has ever taken place in human history. It wasn't a battle of bullets and guns, but it was a battle, a battle of godliness and moral will. It was a confrontation between, between purity and absolute evil, between good and evil. In this confrontation, you probably know where I'm going with this. We're going to be talking about the temptation that took place in the wilderness in just a couple of minutes. But but listen, this was, this was so important, uh, an event in human history, that our lives literally depended upon it. I talked with my wife a little while ago uh, about the message this morning, and, and, and one of the things that she was saying to me is, honey, it's hard for me to believe that Jesus could have possibly failed. But I said, honey, th- 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 there's, there's, n- this is not a play. This, th- this is not some false kind of thing that he just kind of went through. There's a real tension here. And though I don't understand it all and I can't explain it all, I believe that had Jesus failed, had he succumbed to the solicitations and the temptation of the wicked one, then, then we would have been eternally lost in, in our sins and in death. But somehow, some way, you know, 
even though it's hard for us to fully understand, he's, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. He was a man just as we are, complete 100% man. And yet he was so unique in that he was, of course, he was, he was the God-man, Christ Jesus. But I want to share with you, but I, I believe that when he made that statement, he was declaring just how indispensable the word of God is to him. Now, if it's indispensable to him, to the Son of God, then it's got to be invaluable and indispensable to us as well. In the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whenever you refer to those three together, it's called the Synoptic Gospels, and, and, and they each relate the story of the temptation. And, and they have it uh, almost exactly at around the same place, right after the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. Uh, John is the forerunner. Uh, John the Baptist, he's the one who's to introduce Jesus to the nation. He's, he's to prepare the way of the Lord. He spoke about Jesus before Jesus came on the scene. He said, I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandals. There's one coming after me who's preferred before me. John said, who, who I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then when he came on that day, his eyes were open. And he sees the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus and staying, resting on Jesus like a dove. And then John said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, now, now that is so significant. But what is even more significant of John's declaration is the Father's declaration of who this is. Because it was at his baptism that the silence of heaven was broken and the voice of God was heard saying this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now this is the, the, the setting up, this is the beginning, if you will, the inauguration of the, of the messianic ministry of Jesus Christ. And, and the battle from the demonic standpoint, this battle is to, is to take Jesus out, to, to render him as being uh, uh, an inadequate savior, to, to, to tempt him and to cause him to sin. But from heaven's standpoint, he's being led by the Spirit into the wilderness there to be tested or tempted by the devil because God wants to show forth his character, to show forth his faithfulness, to show forth his purity of person and his, and his loveliness and his ability to do something that no other man in human history has ever done, and that is to not only stand before Satan, but to defeat Satan in his own battleground. Interestingly, Luke has, has like kind of almost the parentheses between the baptism and, uh, uh, and, 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 this, and this epic battle that's taking place. And the, the parentheses, interestingly, is the genealogy of Jesus. He, he goes through the list all the way, you know, backwards, all the way down to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and, and Enoch, and Methuselah. And then he says, and Adam, who was the son of God. And I believe that there's a specific reason. So that we would draw a contrast in what is taking place here. Because, because now we're going to talk about the last Adam. Luke makes the connection in the genealogy to, to remind us that the first Adam failed miserably and as a result of that, sin and sorrow and death and suffering entered into our world. And here now is the last Adam, the Lord Jesus from heaven. There, there's some interesting parallels and some contrast and, and disparaging things between them. And I want to just share a couple of those thoughts with you. Adam was, 
first tempted when he was in a garden paradise. Jesus is being tempted when he's in a harsh environment called the wilderness. Adam was in the friendly, plush surroundings of a garden, and Jesus was in the desolate barrenness of a wilderness. The first Adam was well-fed, and he was rested, but Jesus was now at a point of becoming weary physically, having fasted for 40 days, and he was hungry. Satan approaches Adam and Eve in the garden, if you will, with a relatively inexperienced as the tempter, but he comes now to Jesus after the centuries and centuries of his maturing, becoming craftful or artful in the, in the craft of deception and war. Adam fails in his testing. It was God who put the tree there. It was God who had set up the test to show forth the character of man. And Adam fails the test, and he plunges the whole race of us into this place of sin and sorrow and death. But the, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes forth triumphant out of, the, out of the temptation as a victorious warrior. He's the first man in human history who's ever stood before Satan. And not only that, he's defeated Satan. And the Bible tells us that Satan, having left him for a season, Jesus returns in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at that in more detail in just a couple of minutes. But I want, I want you to see how indispensable the word of God, the, the written word was to the living word of God, Jesus. So let's pick up in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus, then is the then after the baptism. Now is the official beginning of the, of, the, of the ministry of Jesus, but he's got to pass this test first. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Mark says that Jesus was driven by the Spirit. Now, you have to understand that from the devil's point of view, his temptations are to destroy us, but from God's point of view, his testings are to reveal our character. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I mean, could you imagine how hungry would you be? Some of you are thinking about lunch right now. Come on, you know, and you had breakfast this morning. Come on. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, let me just say this. There's a number of commentators out there who are saying that Jesus wasn't being tempted in the area of proving his divinity, that the word if there should be, could be read as, since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, that might be a possibility. Then Jesus answered, and I want you to notice how he answers. He says, it is written, meaning that what I'm about to say to you right now, Satan, comes directly from the inspiration of God's word. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5 says, then the devil took him into the holy city. How did he take him into the holy city? I don't know. Something supernatural is going on here. Was this something of a vision? Was this something just in his mind? Could we see this if we, if we were there? I don't know the answers to that. That really is the important issue. But he, took, he takes Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And again, he says, since or if you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down for it is written. Now notice what Satan does. Satan quotes the word. He says, for he will command his angels concerning you 
and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike a foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, verse 8 says, the devil took him into a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. Now, now again, this is something supernatural. There, there is no advantage point in any mountain that could show you all the kingdoms of the world. Luke adds, in a moment's time. So something, something of a supernatural order is happening here. And so he says, he says, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all of this. Verse 9, all this I will give you if you just simply bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and they ministered or they attended to him. And again, I say that Luke puts at the conclusion of this that Satan having left Jesus, departed from Jesus for a season but Jesus, the Bible says, return in the power of the Spirit. In other words, this, this experience, this battle did not diminish Jesus. It did, not, it did not deplete Jesus in the least. In fact, he was only made stronger by this, by the Spirit of God that was upon him. And remember the first message that he preaches? When he goes to Nazareth, he says, the Spirit of God's upon me, and he has anointed me, he's empowered me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, I want to say this, that each of these scriptures that Jesus used are quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. They are not random scriptures that Jesus pulled out of the air. They have a very specific purpose and a very specific meaning. There are many other scriptures that Jesus could have chosen, but he chose this to give us an indication, to teach us something about the nature of both temptation and how to overcome by the written word of God. See, Jesus understood the connection. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8. And, and, and these, the book of Deuteronomy is, is the, the second time the, the, the law of God was given to the children of Israel, to the second generation. The generation that was on the verge of a great conquest to enter into the land. The first generation that came out of Egypt failed miserably. But now this new generation was about to go in. And so Moses is reminding the children of Israel of their past history. The nation of Israel, and Jesus understands that. He understands both his connection to the first Adam as the last Adam, but also to his connection to Israel. See, Israel in the Old Testament is called God's son. He's called God's firstborn. That was the message in Egypt, let my son go that they might worship me. And, and Jesus is now the beloved son who's not going to fail, but who understands and has learned, listen, not by just simply 40 days of having been tested, but 30 years of having been tested and having proved himself now to, to display his loyalty, his trust and his obedience in the word of God. And so he says, man doesn't live by bread alone. I think that there's so much here to the temptation that we, 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 we're just, God, you know, unless he opens up our understanding to the, deep, the deepness of this, the strategy of this was ingenious. This is not a light temptation for Jesus to undergo. You see, the desire for food, there's nothing wrong with, there's nothing, there's nothing evil about bread. There's nothing evil about wanting to satisfy your hunger. You know, those are natural, legitimate desires. And so is the desire for protection. 
One of the, one of the, 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 the gifts of grace that God's given to us is that inerrant desire to survive, that, that instinct of survival. It's a gift that God's given to the human race, you know? And, and the desire for protection is not an illegitimate thing or a bad thing. Or even in the case of Jesus now, he had been promised that, that he would rule the nations with a rod of iron. In Psalm chapter 2, it says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations of the earth as your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the, of the world as your possession. All of these things were, were legitimate and right, especially for Jesus, for who he is. But the tempter is trying to get Jesus to seduce him to achieve legitimate means by illegitimate ways. How many times have you probably faced similar situations where, where the enemy wants to get you to do something because the, the end result is good, but the, but the means to, to get there, to justify yourself to get there is to do wrong. So many times we face crisis in our own lives of temptations where we, we, we want to achieve the, the outcome that's good, but, but do we make shortcuts? Do we compromise on the word of God? Do we compromise in character or integrity to get there? And those are the great temptations. And, and Satan is really adept at his ability to do that. And, and when we do that, then we're, like, then we're like a household that has no means of protection and has no means of defense against the thief that would come to steal, kill, and to destroy. I want you to see with me this morning just how important the Word of God was to Jesus, not just here in this 40-day period, but throughout his whole life. And the way that I could do that is to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and help, help you to peek into the silent years of Jesus. You see, Jesus, when he was a child and when Jesus was a young man, the Bible says that he grew in wisdom and in favor with God. And one of the ways in which Jesus grew in wisdom and in favor with God was because of the way in which he soaked and saturated his, himself in the word of God. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 50 for a moment. It's kind of a prophetic glimpse into the life of Jesus uh, as, as Jesus is learning and growing. It says this, verse 4, the sovereign Lord, and just I want to read just a little bit beyond that so that, that you understand this is the Jesus that we're talking about, okay? It's unmistakably Jesus. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. One translation says, the tongue of the learned, to know how to speak to those that are weary, to know the word that will sustain the weary. Listen, he wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. I don't know about you, but, but I find that when I wake up in the morning, if I will be attentive to God, that is when God speaks to me the clearest. That is when the word of God can become the most revealing it's, it's in those wakening hours. So I just want to encourage you to do that. It says, verse 5, The sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. And, and just to go on to show you how Jesus was shaped and fashioned and formed by the word of God. He says, I, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. This is, this is absolutely Jesus. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. 
He who vindicates me is near. That is, there is, there is a, an identity with the Holy Spirit and the partnership with the Holy Spirit. He says, when, excuse me, who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. Jesus was absolutely willing. He wasn't a reluctant participant in this epic battle that was taking place. It was because he had been prepared over the 30 years of his life by being soaked and saturated in the word of God that he was ready to stand toe-to-toe against the powers of darkness. Listen, no one ever stood before Satan before. You, you, you name the great figures of the Bible. You name Moses and, and, and uh, you know, uh, Isaiah, uh, David. Uh, uh, every single person has some mark against them in which in which they fell through temptation, they fell through fear or or something that brought them down. But here we see Jesus in his purity, being absolutely faithful to God and to his, his, his word. This first temptation to turn stones into bread was a temptation not so much to prove his divinity as much as it was to get Jesus to pick up what he had laid aside. Remember what Paul says? Paul says that Jesus, though he being very God, took not that upon himself as, 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 as the right of God, but laid aside his eternal glory. He laid aside his rights and his prerogatives and his power. And what the enemy was trying to get him to do is to act in his sonship in a way that was not consistent with God's ordained mission for him. Turn stones into bread was not God's ordained mission for him. It's subtle. But what it, what it basically is, is, is it reminds me of that first temptation, and that is to declare your independence from God. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. And, and, and the reason why this is so important is because Jesus really believed that the word of God was indispensable to him. I want to share with you, uh, the American Bible Society, uh, the... Uh, CEO of American Bible Society's name is Lamar Vest, and, and I have a quote from him. He says, there are probably five Bibles on every shelf in American homes. Americans buy Bibles. They debate the Bible. They love the Bible. They just don't read the Bible. Isn't that an amazing statement? The Bible is still the, the, the number one selling book in the world. But this guy is saying, this, this man who's who should know something about the statistics, is saying, Americans love Bibles. We've got five Bibles, and I've got more than that. But the problem is that we just don't read the Bible. And then he said, then he said this, the American Bible Society is not trying to get people to buy more Bibles. We're just trying to get people to make good use of the Bibles they already have. I'm going to share with you some statistics you may know George, uh, George Barnard. He does uh, these surveys and, and, and does research. And he conducted a survey among those who said that they were Christians, American Christians, right? And he came up with these startling statistics. I'll share them with you. He said this, 48% said that they could not name or they could not name the four Gospels. Could you imagine 48%, almost half, could not, could not name Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 52% cannot identify more than two or three of Jesus' disciples. They, they, they probably can name the seven dwarfs and, the, and, 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 and Santa Claus's reindeer, but they can't name more than two or three disciples. 
60% of American Christians can't, can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. 61% of American Christians think the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. It's funny, but it's also tragic. 71% of Americans think that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. It's not. God helps those who can't help themselves, who admit they, can't, they need help. And here's a quote from him. He says this, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't know what it says. And because they don't know, they don't know it, they have become a nation, a, a nation of biblical illiterates. What an indictment against our nation. And, I, and I, I think it's true. And here's why it's so important. Because to not know the word of God, that's why hundreds and thousands literally of our fellow citizens are being duped by false teachers and, and by doctrines of demons and, and, and being fed junk food instead of feasting upon the word of God. Unless you know the word of God, unless you know what's in it, you might be tempted to have teachers who will tickle your ears, as so many have in these last days. And Paul warns about that, that men will gather to themselves teachers that will tickle their ears, give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, the devil's first temptation was to try to get Jesus to, to be seduced through his weakness, through his being hungry and weary after 40 days. But now in the second temptation, what the enemy is trying to do is to get Jesus to, to succumb because of his strength, his belief in the word of God, his faith in the word of God. And so he says, he says in essence to Jesus, all right, you, you quote the word to me, I'll quote the word to you. Just, just jump off of this high place here, and he will give his angels charge concerning you. He won't let you fail. He won't let you fall. And how many people have also fallen because they've tried to prove the word of God, and, and in, the, in the process, that what they've done is unknowingly they've tempted the Lord. They've, they've provoked the Lord. And I'll try to explain a little bit of what that means. You see, Satan accurately quoted Psalm 91. The devil knows the word of God. And the devil quoted the word of God, but he didn't, but he didn't, whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie and it becomes a lie. But what I want you to know is this, is that God has promised his people protection, but not when his people are reckless or foolish, right? That's when we provoke God and we force God. And so if Jesus would have jumped or leaped, come on, basically what he's saying is, Put your money where your mouth is, Jesus. If you really believe that man lives by every word of God, prove it now. And had Jesus jumped into the arms of angels, he would have been provoking his God. Just as the children of Israel did when they were in Egypt by, by complaining about, we don't have enough food or we don't have enough water when God had supplied them with bread from heaven on a daily basis, when he caused water to come out of a flinty rock, when their clothes didn't wear out and their, and their shoes didn't, didn't wear out or their feet didn't swell, and yet they still complained. They were provoking God. In other words, they were trying to manipulate God to do for them what they wanted, and on one occasion, they wanted meat. They didn't want that loathsome bread anymore, and that's what it means to provoke God and and Jesus said, you shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. In the third temptation, 
Satan offers to return to to mankind the authority that he usurped from Adam at the fall in the garden. All this power will I give you. I'll give you rulership over all the nations. If you just do this simple thing, just bow down. Just go ahead, bend one knee to me. That's all. It'll just take you a few moments. Such a little price for, for so much that I'm giving you. And Jesus said, I'm not going to waste my time even for one single second other than worshiping the one true God. And how many times have we been tempted to, to put our love and our devotion into something or someone before our love and devotion into God. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 13 and 14. Beloved, I want you to see that Jesus leaves for us an example. He wants us to catch this, not so much to teach this, as much as he wants us to catch the importance of the word of God in our life so that we will apply, that we will allow our hearts and our minds to become soaked and saturated in the word of God. Because if, if he viewed it as being indispensable, how much more invaluable is the word of God to us? I tell you, I credit the word of God in my life for having, having saved my mind, having delivered me, have, having rescued me from a, a, a psychological and a physical drug dependency when I was in my early 20s, yeah. Saved my family, saved my, my marriage, the word of God. I became so ferociously hungry for the word of God and, and devouring it in every form that I could. Now, now I want to tell you, some of you, you don't, you've never seen what a cassette tape looks like. For those of you young <clears throat> kids <clears throat> who don't know what a that was the go-to technology of the day back in the 70s, you know, and I found out back in the 70s, I found out that there was a bookstore about an hour away that had the whole Bible on tapes, several albums. It was $170, and $170 back in the, in the mid-70s was was considerable amount of money, which I actually couldn't probably afford at the time. But I remember driving in a pouring rain because I had to get it. See, at the time, I owned a business in Queens, and I would drive sometimes three, four hours a day. And I wanted to make the best use of that. And I, and I listened to the word of God every single day driving to and from that business. But, but you know what? Because I owned the business, three and four hours a day wasn't enough for me. And so I would play, I would play the word of God while having retail business going on. Wasn't good for business, but it sure was good for bringing about a transformation of my mind. And I credit the word of God for doing that because I couldn't get enough. And a love for the word of God, I believe a love for the word of God will bring about transformation in your life. There was a man who was, who was walking through the streets of Hong Kong and he comes across a, a tattoo studio. And in the tattoo studio, in, in the window, are a number of uh, possibilities of the different kinds of tattoos that, that were being offered. Eagles. You know, you could have a you could have a heart. You could have a, a rose tattooed on your arm or on your, you know, chest or whatever part of your body you wanted. But there was this one one phrase that that, that was that was that was this born to lose, and and the man became so so just kind of curious about that. He went into the the the, the tattoo studio and he, and he asked the artist. He pointed to those three words and he says, he says. Tell me, does anybody really have those, that phrase tattooed on their body? And the tattoo artist said, yes, sometimes yes. 
And the man said, I can't believe that anybody in their right mind would, would have that tattooed on their body. And in broken English, the, the tattoo artist said, before tattoo on mind, he tapped his head. He says, he says before tattooed on body, tattooed on mind. Let, let, me, let me just say this. That every day, every day, there's an opportunity to have something tattooed on your mind and on your heart. And the enemy wants to tap, tattoo on your mind that you're a loser, that, that you're lost, that you're beyond the hope of God, that, that you'll never do anything for God, that you'll never accomplish anything for God's kingdom. And, 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 and I tell you what, the enemy wants that to be tattooed, but God wants your heart to be tattooed with better things than that, that you are the righteousness of God in Christ, that you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. That if you know these things that are in the word, the Holy Spirit can begin to make them alive in your heart. Now, my time's running out, and I've got to close real soon, but I want to close with one last scripture this morning, and it's short, and it's simply this. It's Colossians 3.16. 3.16 are numbers that are easy to remember. John 3.16 is easy to remember, but Colossians 3.16, I want you to, to, to let this live and vibrate in your spirit this morning. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ, let the word of God dwell in you richly. What that means is that the word of God should be in you abundantly. It should be in you in great amounts of abundance, richly. What, what Jesus is basically saying to us is, I want you to feast upon my word. I want you to meditate upon my word. I want my word to wash over you and to begin to renew your thoughts and to begin to transform the way in which you think and the way in which you live and to shape the thoughts of your life. Let my word be tattooed on your mind and on your heart. When we do that, specifically let the words of Christ, I, I think what Paul is saying there is, let the word about Christ his character, his life, his mission, what Jesus accomplished, his, his will, his, his desires for us, let those things be reproduced in us. And when, and when that will begin to happen in our life, let me tell you what I, I, I want you to walk away with this morning is simply this, knowing that the word is life, that my words are spirit and my words are life, said Jesus. The flesh profits nothing. You know, bread is, is necessary. It's a good thing. We need nourishment, but we cannot live. Listen, I know you're going to have a meal after church today. I, 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 we're going to invite you to go into the cafe and have a bagel or a donut, and, and, and that'll, be, that'll be nourishing to your body. Maybe not the donut, but, but, <laughs> but, but, but it will satisfy your belly. But, but listen, don't go another day without satisfying your soul without being built up and being enriched by the word of God, it can transform your life. What I'm saying to you this morning is let the word of God become a priority to you. Don't neglect it. Don't be a part of the statistics that I read from that survey of people that, that don't know what the word is because something great is at stake. You can be seduced by doctrines of demons and, and be fooled by false teachers. Remember, the Bible says that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. But if you know the word, you can stand up and you can say, no, that's not what the word of God says. The word of God says this. And therefore, you can be 
Listen, you, you can be equipped and prepared to protect the people that you love as well as your own household. That you will have a weapon that is mighty through God to the pulling down of vain imaginations because the word of God is life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the precious word of God. And I I ask, Lord God, that you would give every person this morning hearing this message an appetite that is insatiable to devour the word of God. I I pray that you will show us practical ways that, that we can begin to study and meditate, sometimes on one word, some, sometimes, sometimes spending an hour and reading through a whole book of the Bible, sometimes just, just eating and devouring one sentence from the scriptures so that we will be equipped and we will be imp- empowered just in the same way that you were empowered by the anointing of the Holy Spirit who took the word of God so that we could say it is written. Now I pray, Lord God, that these acts of kindness from your hand, O God, Lord, would be upon us to enable us even now this morning, Lord God, as we're closing, just just be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Be changed, not conformed to this world but be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Would you do that for us today, Father? We will give you the praise and the honor as we stand and worship you in this house today.